Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. When Bernard Liotel took a management course at Stanford, his friends thought he was going for the California sunshine. They thought he was crazy when he decided to set up his own business after a few years working for the US software company Oracle, because at the time there were few entrepreneurs in France and not many people understood the phenomenon. He came into the FT studio to tell me his story. We started with another friend of mine who was in sales at Oracle. I was in marketing and product. And we had met actually this developer who was working at night in his attic in Le Marais, you know, in the middle of, of Paris. And he was working on all sorts of things. You know, one day would be an astrology program, another day would be a game. And then he decided to build a help tool for Oracle. And so he came to us and said, hey, why don't you resell my product at Oracle? Oracle was not interested. So Denis, my co-founder, and myself said, hey, why don't we start a company with Jean-Michel, this developer, and we go for it. So we, we established our office in a tiny, tiny little business center right outside of Paris. We had one desk for the two of us and one laptop computer that we borrowed from Oracle at the time. We ended up uh, buying it from them, but it was probably one of the first laptops that existed. It was a long time ago. So in 1990, there was not very thin laptops like today. But it was a great time to start. And at the beginning, we had actually to negotiate the deal with the initial developer because he wanted to sell this product for a million French francs. We didn't have a million French francs to give him. We didn't have actually 20,000. So we negotiated uh, a deal with him for royalties. What sort of seed funding were you getting? Were these savings or did you have any angel back? Uh, so at the it? beginning, we didn't have much. I mean, I think I had about 5,000 francs and Denis had about 10. So we didn't pay ourselves anything. We just had this little tiny office. And the only thing we could think of is we have to try to sell this product as quickly as possible. So we went and talked to all our friends at Oracle and said, hey, we have this great product that enables your customers to actually being able to access and analyze data on Oracle, which is a complicated system. So why don't you introduce us to your customers and you'll see it'll be great. And so they did. They're also friends. You know, we were young and they said, hey, why don't we, you know, give a break to Bernard and Denis? So we started the company on August 3rd, formally. And then on August 15th, we did our first sale. We sold to a company called COFAS. It's a sort of semi-government body who helps ensure companies who want to put their companies or their business abroad. And we just found someone there who was in the IT department who had that particular need of letting access to its users on Oracle. 
But the guy was a risk taker. He's the kind of guy who was flying in an old plane in the weekends and doing like acrobatics on this plane. So this is exactly the kind of person we're looking for. Someone who is ready to take risk and pay us. I think the first license was like 15,000 francs. It was very important because we showed to all the salespeople at Oracle that uh, we could actually win a deal. And actually, that success helped Oracle turn this customer around. He was going to buy a competitive product to Oracle. But because our software only worked with Oracle, they ended up buying the big database. And then we used that deal to promote ourselves to all the other people in Oracle. And then very quickly afterwards, we signed Electricity of France, EDF. We signed France Telecom. And in a period of a, of a few months, we already had like two or 300,000 French francs at the time of deals in the bank. Nobody would come to our office because our office was very, very small. But first of all, we picked a name that sounded non-French business objects. So he was like, oh, wow, this must be a big California company that just started their operation in France. And we sort of played on that ambiguity when people asked us, well, how many are you in the company? And we say, we're five in France, just as if like maybe there was this big headquarters somewhere else. And that worked. Very quickly, we tried to raise some venture money. And so we, we managed to quickly get a million euros from investors, some in France and some in California. Clearly, with the California investors, really the goal was you need to succeed in the U.S. So a year after we started in September 91, so we were barely 10 people in Paris, we started operations in Menlo Park in California and also an operation here in the U.K. And then we started actually getting customers in the U.K. and in the U.S. very, very quickly, which immediately gave a, an international flavor to the business. The challenge was that for Americans, for instance, it's very bizarre to work for a French company in software. In general, like 90% of the software companies are run out of the U.S., and therefore the French office is a subsidiary. So to hire people in the U.S. and say, you're going to work for some folks that are based in Paris, was the world upside down. So we, we had a bit of a hard time in, at the beginning. And there were, over time, there were also a lot of doubts from the Americans that the French were doing any good work. So there was all sorts of preconceived ideas like, oh, you know, the French people, they spend their time smoking cigarettes and having coffees and taking three-hour lunch breaks. And then the French people thought, well, the Americans, they don't understand anything about technology. It's just you know, a bunch of sales guys. And so very quickly, we realized, okay, we need to bring Americans to Paris, and we need to send Parisians to California. And then we did swap programs where some guy working in pre-sales or pre-sales engineering in, in California would spend six months working in Paris. And it was very interesting to see how things would shift very quickly. Suddenly, the Americans in Paris thought the things in Paris are amazing. As engineers, they work so hard. And vice versa, the Parisians coming to California said, well, these guys are actually talking to very demanding customers. They have a hard time. And so that worked out very well. And progressively, we realized that this concept of multicultural identity was a fantastic opportunity for the business, not to have one dominant culture that you find so often in companies, like a California company is run by California and, and, it's, and it's very much so, or a French company is very French. So we developed this transnational identity. We had customers in many countries. We also started Italy and Germany and the Nordics and started an Asia office. So whereas we were still a startup, we had operation in many countries and we had people on the ground that were business objects people. 
And so the sharing of ideas was very much a, a multicultural one. The sharing of business model, the sharing of best practices. There would be a lot of thought collaboration. So if the UK had the best service organization, then everybody would adopt that. Or if the US were the best at sales, then we would adopt that, et cetera, et cetera. What were the key moments in the development of the product? At the very beginning, the product was very simple, and it enabled people to ask any question about their information system, like, okay, I would like to know the sales of this particular product for the past six months and how it compares from this region to that region. And very naturally, the software would go and within the database and bring the data back. So it was basically a query system for a business user as opposed to an IT person who would have to program things. It was no programming, just a visual querying. And then our customers said, well, it's great to be able to do queries, but we'd like to do more sophisticated reporting. So we added reporting to it. And then at some point, people want to do more complicated analysis, so we added more onto that. So it was basically building layers and layers around that core foundation, which was based on a very simple observation, which is business people, in order to make decisions, need to have access to data. Because at the time, the state of the art was that people were making decisions based on gut feel. Only the CEO and a few of these executives had access to the data because the IT department would work for them. So anytime the CEO says, I need to have that information, obviously the entire IT department does it for them. But if you're at the low end of the organization, nobody's going to work for you. Nobody's going to give you that data. And if you don't have the ability to actually access it, then you basically have to sort of guess. And so the whole thing went beyond just a product. It became a sort of a, a movement and an idea, which we dubbed information democracy. Everybody needs to have access to data for the company to be much more efficient. So uh, we pioneered what we call now the, the modern business intelligence industry, which I think is probably a $10 billion industry today. Very, very quickly, we grew, and the business in about four years went from zero to $30 million of revenue. And then one day, we had the visit of Goldman Sachs, which said, hey, uh, have you thought of going public? And we had actually thought about it because we had American investors who said, your goal should be to go public soon. And then when Goldman Sachs knocked at our door, we said, yeah, we actually would love to do that. And Goldman Sachs would be our dream team. And so we put this whole thing together, and then we, we went for it. And we were, at the time, the very first software company out of Europe to go public on a U.S. exchange. And that was a fantastic event and a, and a huge milestone for the business. Goldman Sachs was driving us into it, so we were just transported by them into it. But I remember the very first day when we were all on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs, and then when the first trade happened, and finally we had the business objects ticker appear with the first price. It was an unbelievable moment that I will remember all my life. I mean, it's only afterwards you realize that it comes with a lot of responsibility. Because suddenly you have uh, hundreds of thousands of shareholders and you need to report to them in quarterly earnings calls, as you know, on Wall Street and with lots of analysts on the call, and it becomes a big responsibility. Doesn't that take the fun out of being a founder? It makes things very different. And that's when you saw that Denis and I, who Denis was my co-founder, had slightly different views on this. I thought this was the beginning of something much bigger. And for him, he didn't have the same passion about the future. He was much more passionate about the early founding years. And so it just about a year and a half later, he decided to 
resign and I decided to continue on to build a bigger business. I think I felt that I was able to build a company for the long run and the idea of building something really big really appealed to me. Of course, you have many more people. At the end of the company, we had 7,000 people. But you create connections and you create a movement also. And when you create a real culture, that becomes the glue. So the glue is not necessarily just your personal connections, but it's something that you have created. And when you see everybody marching in one direction and being excited by the progress of the company, the strategy if you have uh, put together, uh, the different milestones, there's nothing better than this, in my opinion. Jean-Michel, who is the original developer, never wanted to join the company. He liked to work at night, didn't want to have schedules and so on. That's why he negoti we negotiated a deal with him based on these royalties. And then we realized, okay, we need to have our own R&D team. So we hired people from the outside. But he was still earning enormous amounts of royalties because the initial deal we had with him was 25% of sales would go to him. We at some point realized we cannot actually have a, a profitable company ever with this kind of transaction. So we had to transform the, the royalty deal into an equity deal just before the IPO because we realized we can't go public unless we solve that issue. The equity at the time didn't seem much, but when the company went public and then was very highly valued afterwards, that little piece of equity ended up being worth quite a lot of money. I mean, you need to recognize that uh, he, he was critical. So I think that was good. And if you end up doing really bad deals or one-sided deals, I think at some point it comes back and bite you. Maybe you could have sued the company. And no, we ended up uh, you know, staying good friends all over this time. And I think he benefited from it. It was fair. And uh, I think today it's one of his biggest accomplishments. And he's now still very much in technology. It has started a new company. And so he has had a good time. It was a win-win for him too. Yeah. Fast forward to 1996. You were actually being nominated as the hottest entrepreneur of the year, but then crisis. We went public in 94. Everything went well afterwards for seven quarters. We grew at 100% of profitability. We went from a valuation at the IPO of $125 million to a billion in a short period of time. But we realized that the product needed to evolve and we need to come up with a brand new version. And we decided to rewrite the products from scratch. We promoted it heavily. And there was a huge expectation from the market on this product, but the product was not ready when it was supposed to come out. And we felt compelled to release it, but it was very buggy. It didn't really run on the existing platform of our customers, which had old PCs, whereas Microsoft had come up with, at that time, it was Windows 95 and Windows NT, which was a great platform for our new product. They were all working on the old PCs, the 386 and so on, which was not a good platform for our product. And so we lost a lot of customers. And instead of growing at 100%, we grew at 40%. Still very, very much a respectable growth rate. But at that time, we were public. And as you know, the, when you miss the expectation, you're being hit very hard. So that was a big crisis. And that was compounded by another problem that we had, which was we did a deal in Germany that ended up getting undone. It just happened in a subsidiary. And we only knew it about five months later. The management sort of covered it up at the time. And so we had to come to Wall Street in the middle of already this big prime with the product and say, hey, remember this big million-dollar deal that we did a quarter ago? Well, actually, it's gone. And then we have to restate our earnings from the first quarter. And then uh, and its results of this quarter is not good either. And so that's precipitated the fall. And so... 
our market cap went from a billion dollars back down to 100 million in a period of about a few months. At the same time, it was a period where my co-founder decided to leave the company. So I was basically on my own having to deal with this whole thing. And so I had a period of a bit of a, not depression, but I was not in great shape for a few weeks. But then I, I felt there's no way I should let this great company just die at this moment. And we are going to turn it around. And I had a great support from the board. And they said, Bernard, we need you to bring this company to success again, but you need to act. And so I made a number of decisions in concert with my management team to say, we're going to completely revamp the way we develop products. We are going to change the center of gravity of the company. We're going to move the management team out of France, and we're going to put it in California, where our major customers are, and to be closer to Wall Street. Because at that time, the financial community basically said, we don't trust business objects anymore, and everybody was selling their shares. But we felt that we had to regain confidence on the most important market. So I moved myself to California. I changed half of the management team because at the time it was, okay, we're going to do something different. We need to have slightly different people. We also want to make sure that you're on board. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. Are you on the bus or are you off the bus? And uh, some people said yes. Some people said no. One thing that was great is I had great support from my family. So my wife felt that she would do everything to help me out. So when I said, we're moving to California, she said, fine. The slight advantage I had was she was from California. So for her, it was actually, okay, we're going home. And that's when you realize how much support is critical. And so once I had laid out the plan, being in a mode of action gets you back on the right foot. So mentally, then I was much happier and then going to California and staying in California, I realized the Americans had a also a distorted view of how we were running the business because they were very disappointed. At that time, they said, well, the French headquarters had let us down. They told us to sell this product that doesn't work. The stock price is down. I mean, all my options are worth nothing. And so Bernard is basically not a trustworthy CEO. But just spending the time with them, opening up to them, realizing that we had made some mistakes and acknowledging that we made some mistakes at the time was a very important moment to bring back the the Americans on our side. We started, first of all, fixing the situation with the product. I brought a new CFO that helped us do a lot more cost control. We never had to restructure the company. Profitability went down to zero, but it was not negative. And so we managed to go back up. And then actually we came out of it through innovation. As we were fixing this new version, we built a brand new web product ahead of everyone, whereas the internet was just picking up. And that became the growth driver of the company for the following few years. So from that crisis period, we started growing the company very fast and we became very profitable. Our market cap grew very nicely from 100 million. We ended up going all the way to 5 billion. What about stepping back from the business? The company in 2007 was approached by both SAP and IBM. In the end, we sold to SAP. It was just before the 2008 crisis. So it was a very good price. It's a fantastic opportunity to come out on a high. So at that point, basically, I was out of the job and uh, decided that it'd be great to do something very different and to help startups. And in particular in Europe, I felt that Europe had enormous potential, but had not really produced that many big companies since we went public, actually. But it's a different period now. 
when you have been an entrepreneur, you always are an entrepreneur to some degree. And actually, I did start a company on the side called Dashlane, which is an identity company that lets you manage your passwords. But I have a management team doing it. But I felt that being a venture capitalist would enable me to participate into these startups in a different way and to actually participate in 10 to 15 at the same time as opposed to just one. So I decided to do that. And it's an incredible job because you get to talk to so many passionate entrepreneurs. So I relive a little bit the early days of business objects indirectly. Business Objects was the first European software company to list on the NASDAQ index in New York. I asked Sarah Lubick of Simon Fraser University's BD School of Business in Vancouver to comment on the business object story and outline some of the benefits and pitfalls of raising money in this way. One of the pitfalls of listing on any kind of public exchange is that you end up with less control over the long-term vision of your company because, of course, then you have institutional stakeholders that you need to answer to on a quarter-by-quarter basis. That can be great in that it pushes you to think like a company that will later acquire you. It can also be a challenge because the vision that stakeholders might have for the company might not be the same as what the founding team started off trying to do. And if those things aren't working together, it can be very challenging for the team that started everything in the first place. Some options that you have for making sure that you manage investors properly is to make sure that the team that you get on board whether it's your upper-level team, your C-suite executives, and also the advisors you have on your company are ones that have been there before. The people who know how to manage investor expectations, how to put out reports that continue to inspire confidence while at the same time being realistic, and that can guide you through those pitfalls. In the last 10 or so years, a lot of European experts have been coaching small companies to be thinking global right from the start because there are, of course, very few countries that have a large enough market to allow a company to scale. And so having that global mindset right from the beginning is something that's actually an asset to European companies, where for North American companies, it can be easy to think that North America is the market to think about, and therefore can be more challenging to go global later on. Looking at a story like business objects, to scale up to the size that they have And to be able to be acquired successfully by a large North American company is something that we can learn a lot from. I asked Bernard what's the most important advice he offers to budding entrepreneurs in his new role as a business angel. I try to give them a number of advice. The first, obviously, is to really listen to your customers and to make sure that you build a a product that truly corresponds to something they need. Surround yourself with a great team is probably the most important one. Hire the best people you can. Hire people who are way better than you, and they will carry you forward. And then be clear about your vision, your ambition, but make sure you have an execution plan and that you have enough money to execute. So raise money when you don't need it, because if you are too close to the moment when you are running out of cash, then it's not a good time to raise money. Next week, we talk to an entrepreneur who founded a tech business in Dayton, Ohio and hear how she persuaded investors to back her untested idea. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.